Hello, everyone. This is the Cantus Firmus podcast, and this is Cody. I have as my guest today, Keith Giles. Keith was kind enough to be a uh, to guest on this podcast before when we talked about the movie The Mission. Uh, we had a great conversation there, and I'm really excited to have him back on. Keith has a, actually a very successful book out right now called Jesus Untangled, and I've had him uh, asked him to come on today to discuss a, a different way of looking at the Bible, which another word for that is a hermeneutic, a way of reading the Bible, um, that he promotes in this book, uh, Jesus Untangled, uh, and he, in the book he calls it the Jesus-centered approach. So Keith, could you kind of maybe start by, I'd like you to talk a little about Jesus Untangled, and then maybe uh, transition to how the Jesus-centered approach fits into what you do in that book. Yeah, um, and hey, thanks for having me on, Cody. It's great to be on again and to talk to you again and uh, and the chance to talk about my book. So yeah, um, so I wrote this book, Jesus Untangled. Um, its subtitle is Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And um, I wrote the book a little bit out of my own personal experience and testimony of growing up in Texas. Uh, I live in California now, but I grew up in Texas, um, was raised in a, in a Christian home, but a very conservative Christian home. And... Um, grew up really entangling my faith with a conservative politics and, you know, really oblivious in the beginning. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I was a member of the NRA. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I voted straight ticket Republican. And, and, uh, and I, I think I was, I, well, not, I don't think I would say, I know my opinion at that time was that you really couldn't be a, a true Christian if you were liberal, if you didn't vote a certain way or have a certain, you know, political ideology. Um, and but over time, the Lord just started convicting me that that wasn't right, and uh, that wasn't really what it you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And um, and little by little, the Lord just started revealing to me my own entanglement and how my own faith and politics were really at the, really so entangled that I couldn't tell where my faith ended and my politics began. Um, and so, as I was processing out of that uh, reality and, and kind of shedding my conservative politics and not just conservative politics, but I mean all politics. I did briefly swing a little bit to the left and felt like, well, you know, I'm going to go this other way. That didn't last very long because I very quickly found out that it was kind of the same problem just with different names and different, you know, um, platforms and a different campaign promises. But in the end, politics was politics. And I say in the book, you know, uh, what do you get when you mix religion and politics? You get politics. And that's the truth. I think that really, whenever you mix faith and politics, um, faith ends up on the short end of the stick. Um, you just end up with essentially politics and, and really the message of the gospel gets lost in that process. So the thesis of the book is that one of the greatest threats to Christianity in America is actually American Christianity. That the Americanized version of Christianity, which is so entangled with a political quest for uh, validation and power and um, seeking to be, um, to have political power and have political influence in the culture and in the society, as if, as if the way Christians are going to influence society and advance the kingdom and um, share the gospel is by passing enough laws that essentially make our culture more quote-unquote Christian. Uh, it seems as if that's that's the, the direction that we're headed because that's, you know, if you look at what we're doing, and I say we when I say that, I mean evangelical Christians uh, in America. It seems that that is the direction things are going. And when I wrote the book, I, of course, had no way of predicting the, the reality we're living in today, which is kind of the, the, the things I write about in my book are, um, you know, they're happening now all around us. Uh, everything's kind of turned to 11. And um, maybe that's the reason why the book has gotten so much attention, because I think people mm -hmm. are saying, yeah, this is kind of crazy. You know, what happened to my faith? What happened? Um, you know, how do we get how, how do we get so entangled with nationalism and, and politics and things like that, that the gospel kind of got lost? Yeah. So now, now how does the, the, the Jesus centered hermeneutic or Jesus centered approach uh, fit into how you see these issues? Well, um, a little bit, I think, I think, again, it's something where this was a topic before I wrote the book, you know, I, I blog and do podcasts and things like this uh, as well. And I'm interacting with people online on Facebook and Twitter all the time. And um, so I was slowly beginning to, to blog as I was, as I was having in my own epiphany and my own processing through it. I would write blogs about 
the dangers of mixing faith and politics. And so, of course, then I was getting pushback and arguments from people online. And I think I just started noticing a pattern mm-hmm. uh, as I would get in debates, whether, whether I was debating with another believer about following Jesus into nonviolence, the idea that, that the gospel is a nonviolent um, love your enemy gospel, uh, or if I was talking about the fact that America is not a Christian nation and um, we should not pledge allegiance to our nation or you know, we should pledge allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. And so anytime I was writing articles or, or having a conversation with other believers, um, it, it, it slowly dawned on me that, that what we were really talking about, like if we just backed everything up, mm-hmm. um, I had an assumption that they didn't. And uh, and so, and quite often I would even in the middle once I figured out that's what it was uh, I would even stop in the middle of the of the debate and just say to the person you know what the reason why you see things the way you see them and you're quoting the scriptures you're quoting to me and you're arguing from the direction you're arguing uh, is and the reason I'm doing something different is that you and I um, have, fundamentally have a different perspective on things and. Um, and so that's where this idea came from of the, the, the flat Bible perspective versus the um, Jesus-centric perspective. And I'll be honest, I did not invent this, um, and, but I'm trying to remember where I found it. Um, it might have been, because uh, I was doing some research on the Anabaptists, and I think it was probably as a result of that I came across uh, where someone had basically said, you know, the Anabaptists saw things from this Jesus-centric way and the people that opposed the Anabaptists, you know, many of the reformers, had this other perspective. And it suddenly clicked for me, like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what's happening. Because I, I do lean more in this kind of theologically, in this Anabaptist way perspective mm-hmm. of the Jesus-centric perspective. And, and it seems like the people that are arguing with me or just not able to see what I'm seeing, uh, it's because they're looking at scriptures through a different filter mm-hmm. than I am. And... Um, so, yeah, so, and so, yeah, that's where this came from. The, and in chapter two of my book, I, because uh, as early as possible in the book, I felt like I needed to explain this to people. Mm-hmm. Like, this is why I'm probably seeing things differently than you are. And it's because I'm taking this Jesus-centric perspective. And you, most likely, I think, I think it's not the norm. At least it wasn't my norm growing up um, as a Christian in America. My norm growing up, I wasn't told to read the scriptures from a Jesus-centered perspective. Uh, I was told and trained to really treat the Bible as one book, um, as if it's one single theme and one single voice across the board. Um, and then in, and in that flat Bible perspective, quite often um, you run into a tension between Jesus and Moses or between the New Testament and the Old Covenant uh, scriptures. And what I was noticing is that um, if you take a more of a flat Bible approach, or maybe I should say, if you don't take a Jesus-centric approach, um, that Moses tends to win in that tug of war, that uh, the Old Testament tends to trump. So in other words, an eye for an eye tends to trump uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not, that's not across the board. I'm just saying in my experience, that's the kind of thing that I, that I kept running across. That's interesting. So I wanted to get a sense of kind of how you how you saw this debate sort of shaking out because, you know, as as someone who studied theology formally and informally for for a number of years now, it, it seems to me that the flat Bible approach you talk about isn't one that I've necessarily seen actively promoted at least at least in theological writing, yeah. Um, but perhaps maybe on on the on the you know lay level, perhaps a little bit more, but. Um, yeah. But I guess I'm trying to get a sense of who who do you see as the people who are promoting the flat Bible, and and do you think that I mean Protestant evangelicalism in general, particularly in scholarship, goes that direction, or do you think they take the Jesus-centric approach, or do you think they take a different approach altogether? Well, honestly, Cody, I think um, uh, it's a it's not like I'm going to say, well, this teacher, John Piper is a flat Bible guy or John MacArthur's like, I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, I don't know those guys well enough to tell you that that's how they see things. I don't know Mm -hmm. uh, what perspective they're taking. I I am, I think I'm approaching it, as you were saying, much more on the level of as I'm going, as I'm interacting with other Christians, Mm -hmm. uh, both in the real world, you know, in, in just in my own life or online. um, 
I'm bumping into a, you know, a philosophy or a a, a posture mm-hmm. or a way of looking at scripture that really tends to downplay Jesus, and, and even to the point where I will quote Jesus to them. Mm-hmm. We'll come back and quote, you know, an Old Testament verse to me, and yeah. as if. And 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 then the problem is, and I think this is if we dig a little deeper on this, kind of like let's go a little bit deeper on this thing. Um, flat Bible perspective tends to take the Bible, and and say the Bible says. Dot dot dot. In other words, I can turn in my Bible mm-hmm. to a passage, and I can read in my English translation the sentence that says. And I can read that sentence. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that sentence in English is in my Bible, therefore that has authority and I can, and now, you know, it's all, it's done. Mm-hmm. God said it, I believe it, that settles it and we're done. The, but the problem with that perspective is who said it and who was it said to? Mm-hmm. And, and, and in some cases, perhaps what is said uh, contradicts something or at least bumps up against something that Jesus said. And in those tensions, if someone's, if you sort of this, you would say, well, my Bible says dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Well, if, then if I come back and say, well, but actually Jesus says this. Yeah. Then it comes down to this. Are you following Jesus? Because if you are following Jesus, uh, then what he said counts. And what he said is all that matters. The Bible might have said something else in another place at another time to another people. But to you and me today, people who are saying, we're at least trying to say, I am a Christian, which means I'm a follower of Jesus, then the teachings of Jesus override anything else that might be in your Bible. Um, and so, yeah, quite often, I think probably I've mostly engaged with people on the issue of nonviolence. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably where I've had the most tension. But, it, but it's also come across in this idea, uh, well, by the way, also, it also comes across um, when I'm talking to people about church, when I talk to people about ecclesiology, about the way uh, you know God's designed for His for His church, mm-hmm. people will turn to the Old Testament and say, "Well, but God did this, and God said that, and God told David this, and God told Solomon that, and God told Moses this." And like, yeah, but you know, we don't live under the temple system anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so that's what I mean. And so, like, I see what I just have experienced practically uh, is Christians appealing to. Uh, just scripture in general, but typically what I've noticed is that a lot of the times it's an Old Testament scripture, and they're trying to apply it to us today. When what we're doing is we're we're following Jesus, which should matter to us is what Jesus said. Yeah. So, so what's interesting to me is I, I think I'm I'm maybe not on completely the same page, but but more or less on the same page when it comes to issues of violence and church and state relationship. I think you and I are in in, in you know basic concord on those issues. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't take quite the, the hermeneutical uh, approach that you take. It, and it's what also I think, what, what I'm seeing, um, if I'm talking to somebody about nonviolence, they'll say, uh, well, Jesus said to, uh, you know, take a sword with you or, you know, so, or something like that. Or, right. But, but in either case, what I'm seeing is not a necessarily a flat Bible approach. Uh, well, maybe maybe a flat Bible approach. Maybe we could call it that. But but really, what I'm seeing is a contextless verse approach. And and so you know, right. f- for me, I, and maybe I think we'll get to this shortly. But for me, I, I think I can say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're both authoritative, but they do have different contexts, and they give um, you know the, the sort of the peaks and valleys, the, the sort of the shape of two different covenants. And so while I, I would never say that, you know, um, you know, we, we don't need the Old Testament to understand God or, or to, uh, you know, help us shape our doctrine or, or our behavior, I would say, well, you know, we're dealing with two different covenants here. One of them is involves a physical kingdom, um, you know, a, a national, you know, a physical nation that the other is a, a spiritual kingdom. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are issues like that that I think um, issues of fulfillment and things like that. But. Um, I, I guess I, maybe maybe we should at this point. I, I like to kind of get a sense of how exactly you do see the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe I'll, I'll preface that by just noting um, uh, a G.K. Beale uh, had referenced a personal study that was done by another uh, 
the theological scholar Roger DeCole, where he noted that there are 295 separate quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament, yep. and that those make up about 4.5% of the entire New Testament, which is, ends up being about 352 verses. So yes, the math is uh, one out of uh, 22.5 verses in the New Testament incorporates an Old Testament quotation or reference. So leading you know, from that into the question would be, do you think of the Old Testament as inspired? And if so, is it inspired in a different sense than the New Testament or, or maybe more specifically the words of Jesus? Yeah. Well, I'll start with what, you're, what you just uh, pointed out. And I love G.K. GK Bill, by the way. He has an excellent book called the, uh, the Temple and the Church's Mission, which I highly recommend. Phenomenal book. And I've, and I've talked to him, actually. I interviewed him a couple okay. of years ago and had a chance to talk to him. He's a super cool guy. Um, but but so let me say about that. Then I agree. That's absolutely right. There's you know hundreds of references uh, to the Old Testament in the New Testament. But what you notice is is that when Jesus or the apostles quote those Old Testament scriptures, they are applying them in a radically different context. In other words, they are they're not they're not taking a flat Bible approach. They're not saying. Well, when this verse was said by Jeremiah or Isaiah or David or whoever, mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? In fact, if you want to talk about hermeneutics, their hermeneutics, we would never, ever <laughs> encourage anybody to use the kind of hermeneutics that the apostles use in the New Testament because they, they take things wildly out of context. They, they apply things that were, that's not what that was about, but then they will totally apply it to Jesus or to the kingdom or something like that. And I would say they have absolute authority to do that. I, I think when they do that, they're doing the right thing by mm -hmm. doing that. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. I also believe they were taught by Jesus because it says several times after his resurrection that he sat with the disciples and it says he opened their understanding and he explained to them from the old covenant scriptures, right? From the law and the prophets. And he, he uh, connected those dots for them. So I think um, what they were doing was being obedient to Jesus and, being, and listening to the Holy Spirit and illuminating for us the Old Testament scriptures in the light of Christ, which is what I would, I would say we all need to do. And so my, my perspective would be, and I believe this is what the New Testament um, would want us, how, how the New Testament, uh, the apostles would, would want us to think of it. Um, for example, like when Paul says, you know, that he says to this day, when the old covenant scriptures are read, um, there is a veil that remains over our eyes and that only in Christ is that veil removed. And, and I think that's exactly right. I think that if you look at the Old Covenant Scriptures without looking at it through the lens of Christ, mm -hmm. what you're going to see is a very hazy, blurry, cloudy, unclear um, picture of who God is and what the Father is like. And, and, and I think that what we see the Gospel writers saying and the Apostles saying and Jesus himself saying is, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And no one has ever seen God at any time except the Son who revealed Him to us. Uh, and so I believe again and again and again what we are, we are told in the, in the New Testament from Jesus, from the disciples, from the apostles, uh, is that without looking at those Old Testament scriptures through the lens of Jesus, you only have a blurry, cloudy, unclear picture of who God is. That the clearest picture we could ever possibly have of who God is, we have to start with Jesus. Jesus says, right, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul affirms that in Colossians, that he's the exact representation of the Father. The author, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us the same thing, um, that he is the exact re representation of God and his nature and, uh, and his character. And so the clearest possible picture we will ever see of who God actually is and what God is actually like is revealed to us in Christ. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, we need to keep that in our minds, hold that in our minds. Clearly first, I guess we would say, understand Jesus and who he is and who he was and what he said and what he taught and what he revealed to us about God and what he revealed to us about the Father. And once we understand that, then we go and we read the Old Testament scriptures. And then again, it's like walking into a dark room with a, with a candle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, certain things are going to be illuminated for us. Certain things are going to flash and reflect back to us. And we're going to, oh, there it is. Hey, there's that light. There's some light there. But other things we're really in the light are going to look at it and say, well, I'm not sure. 
you know, I, I, that doesn't look like Jesus to me. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And, and I would say in some of those cases that we would have to conclude that that was someone doing the best they could to tell us what they thought God was like or what they believed God was revealing to them. But in the light of Christ, we would have to say, maybe not. <laughs> and I know that that's a radically different way of looking at things for, than most Christians are, are, are used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that is, the, that is the proper way for us to approach it. If we really do believe that that Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like, mm-hmm. um, the idea again, the idea, you know, we often want to say that uh, we believe in the Trinity, and we want to say, you know, we believe in the deity of Christ, and we want to say that Jesus, uh, Jesus was God, um, and yes, Jesus, Jesus is is God, right? He's God the Son. He's the the, the second person of the Trinity. But the other radical thing that I think we need to realize is that. Um, not only is Jesus uh, like God, God is like Jesus. Uh, now, Jesus has revealed to us the heart and the, the nature of God in the clearest possible terms. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd have to admit it that doesn't always line up very perfectly with the, the view of God that we have throughout a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. Well, so, so I, I think I was I was pretty on board with what you were saying until you talked about the idea of sort of looking at the Old Testament in certain places and saying, well, this doesn't sound like Jesus to me. So, you know, maybe, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to conclude more there than, than what you said, but yeah. it, it seems to me that that, that kind of highlights what, what I see um, as a problem with this particular perspective, which is the subjective nature of it, that it seems to me that what happens in a lot of cases is that somebody has reached a conclusion based on, um, you know, their their own personal values situated in their own cultural context, et cetera. And so they'll go back and say, well, for instance, uh, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. So, um, you know, we can go back and, you know, look at, you know, Leviticus or Paul or whatever, Genesis. And, um, you know, it, you know that doesn't sound like how I understand Jesus because I didn't read what Jesus talked about homosexuality. So we can kind of just cut that out. And But that seems counter to Jesus as I read him, because Jesus refers to the Old Testament as God speaking to humans. Uh, he says that scripture cannot be broken. And at that point, he's only referring to the Old Testament because that's all that there is. Um, he also claims that. So know, I, I, I would. So I, I agree with you uh, to a point. Yeah. I, I think, again, we're both we're both um, we're both running into the parts. We, we, we see things a little differently because mm-hmm. see, I um like on, on the issue of homosexuality, obviously you and I could do an entire podcast just on that topic. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, we can, <laughs> because I would, I would actually say, uh, I think I might agree with you on your supposition, but I would say that Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. And I would say, actually, he actually does say some things that are really fascinating and really challenge our idea, um, of gender and marriage and things like that. When he talks about the eunuch, Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, almost no Christian ever does any discussion about that, which I think we should. Jesus says some pretty crazy radical things, mm-hmm. uh, which we mostly skip over. Um, and uh, and so actually, I, I, w- I would not be against that idea of saying, okay, what, what does Jesus say to us about this topic? Paul obviously does say a couple of things. There's two different places Paul does talk about um, homosexuality, but I think you need to dig a little deeper mm-hmm. than just what your English translation says mm-hmm. like yes the words in your english bible use the word homosexuality but that word wasn't in the english bible until like 1960 something and before that the bible didn't say that didn't use the word homosexual and so again so this is, becomes a deeper rabbit hole for us to dig into if yeah. we want to really yeah. get at it um, well yeah yeah and I, and I don't yeah but I, and i yeah. also i would also real quick real quick yeah, yeah. i would also want to challenge too, and I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea, I, I, I get what you're saying. The danger is that I now get to uh, just on my own apply my personal views onto the scriptures because I don't like X, Y, and Z. Therefore, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's not it's not subjective. It's not arbitrary. It's it's again, we start with Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did he say? Mm-hmm. And we 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 begin with him. He's our standard. And then if we do look through the lens of Jesus, uh, then that's our standard. It's not me. It's not my standard. I don't get to apply my own template to that, right? I don't get to impress upon Jesus what I want to impress upon Jesus. Mm-hmm. I have to let Jesus be Jesus. Uh, and so, I mean, as an example, you know, and it, before the Civil War, 
know, there, there were Christians in America that, that could take their Bible and say, look, the Bible says in the Old and in the New Testament scriptures, and they could quote scriptures in their Bibles in English that's, that where God doesn't, not only doesn't, doesn't um, con, you know, um, condemn slavery, uh, affirms slavery, and Paul does too. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with slavery. But then there were other Christians who I would say take a, who were taking a more Jesus-centric approach who said, yes, you know, your English Bibles don't, you know, call out slavery per se as a sin or as being evil. However, if we take the teachings of Jesus, the idea that we're all made in God's image, that God loves everyone, that we should love even our enemies, um, it, even taking the teachings of Paul, where Paul gives instructions to uh, Philemon about Onesimus, his slave, and says you should love him as you love your own son, that to follow those teachings to their logical conclusions, therefore not own another human being like a, like a cow or like a, you know, a piece of property and treat him like an animal. Um, and so because Christians in America uh, couldn't reconcile a flat Bible versus a Jesus-centric per, uh, per, you know, perception or perspective on this issue, in the scriptures, we ended up having a very bloody civil war because we couldn't, we couldn't as a church, we couldn't as American Christians go to the same scriptures and, and see beyond the, you know, the words in my Bible say this, therefore, case closed. Mm -hmm. That, you know what I mean? That if we start with Jesus and we follow that, if we apply that, then we won't end up in that place where we would be comfortable saying, I can own a person like an animal. So I, I want to go back kind of quickly because you'd said you'd sort of said that, you know, well, if we start with Jesus, it's not necessarily subjective, but, you know, I, I think we would agree that we have to read the Bible. And, and of course we don't have, Jesus may be a more perfect revelation than, than of God than scripture, but we only know about Jesus through scripture. So it's still mediated in that sense. And so we have to apply a hermeneutical principle to understand you know, what Moses is talking about, what his context is, Paul, Jesus, etc. And and I think my concern is I see in those flat Bible people you talk about, or I might call them, you know, contextless <laughs> Biblers <laughs> or whatever. I don't think that these are people who are carefully reading the Old Testament and saying, oh, well, because I've carefully read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I've applied my, my hermeneutic principles consistently, I have reached this conclusion that Christians should, you know, uh, support war. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they are reading their own perspective, their own culture, cultural viewpoint back into scripture. They're looking for anything that will agree with them, and they'll take whatever verse they can out of context and make it fit. And I think I've seen that same approach from a lot of Jesus-centric people, that you start with a what you'd like to think about Jesus, despite the fact that Jesus, you know, says the most commendable things about the Old Testament as he possibly could, um, saying it comes from God, and, you know, those who rejected him did so because they didn't believe or understand the scripture that God inspired. And so, in my, in my perspective, you don't deal with a contextless uh, Bible interpretation by mm -hmm. inserting a subjective hermeneutic. You do, you, you deal, you respond to both issues by having an actually solid and consistent hermeneutical approach that takes the Bible into consideration, every verse of it, its context, what it's trying to say, how that might differ for a new covenant believer. Uh, because obviously the, the, um, in the epistle of the Hebrews, uh, we read that, you know, once you have a new priesthood, you actually have abolished the entire law. So that doesn't apply in the same way. But the author of Hebrews doesn't say um, that that means that this was never inspired, parts of this were never inspired to begin with. And that's what I see as a, a pretty major difference because I feel like what I'm saying, I feel like is consistent with what I read in the words of Jesus in the New Testament, you know, throughout, you know, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, et cetera. Um, so I, I think I guess you've kind of answered the subjectivity question, so I don't, I don't know if you have any responses to that. You're welcome to do that. Otherwise, we can move, we may move on to a, a more. Yeah, question. well, no, I do. I do want to say, yeah, I do, I do want to point out a couple of things. So, um, I mean, I agree with you in that sense. Yeah, I, I think it's possible for somebody um, on the nonviolence issue to appeal to the old covenant uh, and to do so in, in a sense of not looking at the context, but but just in a, in a very simple thing, right? Um, Without a doubt, once I'm involved in a conversation with someone about nonviolence, a Christian about nonviolence, and I talk about Jesus and his teachings, they'll go, well, what about David? Mm -hmm. King David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a violent man. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Now, it's very difficult to then just, to then only doing what you're saying. Uh, what am I taking out of context to say that David was a man after God's own heart? He certainly was. The scriptures flat out say mm -hmm. David was a man after God's own heart. Um, David was a warrior, you know, right? David killed his 10,000s. Um, so what am I taking out of context there? You know, Cody, I could just say, what do you mean I'm taking things out of context? That's what the Bible says. I can turn to the chapter and verse and, and see that's exactly the truth. So, so mm -hmm. uh, you know, how now does your thing about Jesus saying to love my enemies and turn the other cheek square with that? I'm not taking anything out of context. Sure, see, sure. what I would say is that, you know, you're not, but, so in other words, in that situation, it's not context. It's, well, then who has more authority for you? Mm -hmm. Is it David or is it Jesus? Well, or is it, or is it, you know, the, the whoever wrote the Psalms or whoever wrote, you know, Second uh, Samuel or, or Kings, or whatever, is it that person, mm -hmm. or is it Jesus? Because Jesus gives us gives us some pretty clear commands, and yeah, David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a bloody you know warrior. But it, by the way, it's also the reason why he wasn't allowed to build God's temple, mm -hmm. right? He was disqualified from building the temple of God because he had blood on his hands. So um, anyway, I just feel like. It, it's not always a cut and dry thing to say, well, you're, you're just, if, if someone does that, they're just simply taking the Old Testament out of context. Because um, I, I, I think what they're doing is they're, um, I, I think that, let's just put it this way. If Jesus is your absolute final authority on everything that you believe, mm -hmm. and I quote the person that is your absolute final authority on everything that you believe, mm -hmm. Why are we still talking? Why would you come back to me and quote someone else? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm sure, saying? Sure. Well, I yeah. just told you what your absolute final authority told you to do. Sure. And then even ended this whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Like, what are we doing here? Sure. So, so, um, and so I, I, to me, it does boil down to not having a ultimately not having a Jesus authority, not having Christ be your authority and all those things. So, so, so but let's say that you're, I, I'm the interlocutor here and you're arguing with me and I, I've quoted okay. Moses or, or David or whomever, and uh, you've quoted Jesus. So, so you quote Jesus and I respond by quoting David. So what I've done is I've essentially said, well, I like this verse better. I haven't said, well, let's right. let's actually exegete what Jesus said. And then maybe we'll look at other passages to sort of see if maybe you know, because obviously we can do that, right? You can look at one passage here and maybe reach a more extreme conclusion that is warranted. So even in the words of Jesus himself, you could, you know, read this passage and ignore this other passage. And, and by reading both, you get a more balanced perspective. So if somebody wants right. to say, you know, I think that when I interpret scripture, um, you know, in light of these, these issues of covenant, because, you know, obviously when you're quoting David, you're quoting something from the Old Testament, which is in a different context than we are in the new covenant. So that itself is a different context. Now you can still say this is, and I would say that what you read in the old Testament is it's a book that's inspired by God, that it is authoritative, that Jesus saw it as authoritative. Um, so, you know, if you want to say that, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you, but you have to figure out how does this fit in the new con in this context of the new covenant. And, and I think if somebody just says, well, I have this other verse, so I don't really know what to tell you. I like this verse better. I, I, right. I, don't, I don't think that they're, they're, they're doing serious hermeneutical or exegetical work there. Right. I agree it, with you. And I think you're right. I think ultimately you're, that is exactly what they're doing. I mean, in their minds, they're not saying I'm taking a flat Bible approach. In their minds, they're saying, um, I just like this verse better. <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree. With yeah, you. yeah, and, and, and I, I agree with you that there's plenty of places you go to the Old Testament. But but let's say someone does that. If someone says I'm going to justify war by going to the Old Old Testament and look at this, Jesus, uh, you know, God, God, you know, told Moses to exterminate the Canaanites. But once again, you aren't going to find Augustine's just war principles in the Old Covenant. So if they want to substantiate war on the basis of the Old Testament, they're substantiating a kind of war that they wouldn't actually say that Christians should engage in anyway. So, so I, I feel like there's there's this major problem that comes from just not doing the legwork to actually exegete scripture. And I, I see that as, I think, the biggest problem because at the end of the day, you and I come to a lot of the same conclusions. I think the fact that we're able to get there is because we both agree that the new covenant um, is a different context and that Jesus is right. very clear about what that looks like. So while 
I'm going to, what I'm going to see is maybe I might see God's character a little bit differently because of how I view the Old Testament. But I'm still going to say that the command, the way that Christians are supposed to live their lives, I'm going to pretty much agree with you. Yes. Right? So, and I I I wonder if- I think so far you're agreeing with me. (laughs) And I think it's that character of God issue that might be the the difficulty. And and what I see with with, with a lot of folks taking the Jesus-centric approach is they not only want to say that Christians are told not to engage in violence because because God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom in the new covenant, but they don't they don't like the idea of, you know, God's judgment in general or, or something like that. So it's it's something about, right. you know, I, I don't particularly like this. It's not so like I said, we can kind of, you know, you, you and I might live our lives in very much the same way, but we're going to look mm-hmm. at the Old Testament differently. And so we're going to look at God's character a little bit differently. Would you say that that's maybe where a lot of this shakes out or well, I think so. Yeah. And I, I think, honestly, if you and I, um, let's put it this way, if you and I spent the next few minutes talking about Jesus and the new covenant, we mm-hmm. wouldn't probably find very much at all we would disagree with. But mm-hmm. if we spent time talking about the way we see the old covenant scriptures, we probably do not see things exactly the same way. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably where you and I have a little bit of different perspective on it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, so let's let's talk about this. So like, I think... Because the flat Bible perspective that I have, and, and I can only speak for myself, I'm, I'm assuming other guys come from the same place. Um, but like you, you, you in this conversation a couple of times have uh, alluded to the fact that Jesus um, had a high regard for the Old Testament and and said things about it and all that stuff. Um, but I, I, I see, I, I don't, I don't see it quite that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that Jesus, obviously Jesus does uh, quote the Old Testament a lot. Um, certainly, you know, when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and talks about, you know, the year of Jubilee and, mm-hmm. you know, this, that he says the scriptures are filled in your, in, in your hearing, applying that to his own messianic, um, you know, identity and, and mission and that kind of thing. Um, but like for me, and this is this is a, this is a pivotal verse. So maybe so I know you and I probably would not read this mm-hmm. passage the same way, but like in Matthew five verses seventeen through eighteen, when Jesus says, right before, by the way, right there at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, where he's getting ready to launch into this his really his major teaching, uh, and he says, you know, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Mm -hmm. And, well, and I'll be honest, I mean, most of my life growing up, I read that and I would summarize that statement as Jesus saying, the Old Testament is absolutely the word of God, full authority, will never pass away because the heavens and the earth haven't passed away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and it's just as, as real and as, and as valid and as powerful and, you know, for us today. But I don't think that's what he's really saying um, anymore. Because, because what I've noticed is that in that statement, there are two untils. Mm-hmm. There are two qualifiers. So the first one is the one we, we I think we all center on. And we typically... Um, We'll look at that first one, and we'll say, well, and, there, and we'll stop right there, and we'll say, well, see, that proves that the old covenant scriptures will last forever, or at least until the heavens and the earth uh, last. Mm-hmm. But there's two qualifiers. The first qualifier, he says, I have not come to abolish the the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I would I would say there's something in there as well. But let me come back to that fulfillment statement. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Okay, so let's t- stick on the two qualifiers. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Mm -hmm. Well, he starts the sentence by saying, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he says, none of it is going to disappear until I accomplish it Mm -hmm. and I fulfill it. And then my question would be for Christians, was everything accomplished? And I would say yes. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus says from the cross, it is finished, the word is actually, the Greek word is the same, it's the exact same word, accomplished. Um, you know, Jesus talks about, he, I think there's a place where he prays and he say even before the cross, 
And he says, Father, I have accomplished everything you have called me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's affirmed later on, right, in, in, the, in the writings of the apostles, that Christ accomplished and fulfilled everything that he was called to do. This is why I think Paul can say with authority in Romans 10, uh, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. Mm-hmm. That he did fulfill the law and the prophets. And the idea of fulfillment, um, again, so Jesus isn't abolishing it. He's not scratching it out. He's not wadding it up and throwing it away. He's saying, no, no, no. All these, all of the law and all the prophets are pointing to me. And he, and he confirmed that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's saying, this is all about me. Everything they're talking about is me and, and who I am and what I'm here to do. And once I accomplish all of those things, it's done. It's accomplished. Mm-hmm. And now, again, that doesn't apply to us anymore. We now have a, a new covenant. We have a new law. We have uh, the law of Christ. And and this is now our what we are living under. And I just don't, I think most Christians don't, think that way i think most christians don't understand that I, well you know, I, yeah i think i think that's what the book of hebrews is actually trying to tell us sure. uh, and does a wonderful job of, of ex- explaining to us this idea that's why it says in hebrews that you know uh the old covenant is obsolete mm-hmm. well it, it's it's been undone because there's a new priesthood and when you've if you've removed the priesthood which is the center of the law then you have or the covenant, you have you have lost that covenant. That covenant's been abolished, right, or, exactly. or fulfilled in some way. Yeah. So, but what I noticed though, is, and and I agreed with everything you said, except for the fact that I I don't think that uh that, that Christians are too Old Testament focused. I think we're I think we have the opposite problem. But, um, but what what I will say is, if you're reading five seventeen and eighteen. I do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So don't think I've come to abolish. That means they've been established. Who's established them? Well, God has established them. Jesus is going to fulfill them. That means that they point to Jesus. Jesus himself argues or, or claims in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one that when, when, when we're reading scripture, we're reading what God has said to us. And I, I agree with everything you said about the, the abolishing of the law. And, and but you know, with, with the with the caveat that I think that we can still read the Old Testament to understand something about God, that it still has some authority, even if it's not the covenant that we're in. It still tells us something about God. Absolutely, right. and and I see. I would say what it's doing is exactly what what Jesus says it's doing. Like this is this is why you know I I have a I don't only carry around a New Testament, right? I have a, a mm-hmm. complete Bible, and I refer to the Old Testament scriptures a lot. But when I do, it's it's to it's to look for something that's telling me about or pointing me to what Christ has fulfilled, mm-hmm. um, right? And so I think, and I think it's it's understanding what value it does have for us today. Uh, it's not we don't live under that law. It doesn't have authority over my life um, the way Jesus does. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that there are certain principles in the Old Testament. That are you know that, that are incontrovertible that haven't fallen away that that are still you know solid in the same sense that they were then, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that we're not under the old covenant law. Um, well, so let me can I ask you that? What you so what do you, what would you say? What is something that, uh, as an example, that is still true under the old covenant that is still true for us today, but that doesn't have a correlation to something that would, you know, I would I would bump into, uh, following Jesus. Well, well, I would actually say that there are, there are things that are cited in the New Testament of the Old Testament that don't specifically point to Jesus, um, but they're but they're referred to as authoritative. For example, Jesus says the most important two commandments are to love God, uh, to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those two things don't point to Christ directly, but they are basic. You don't think so? Well, they do. I guess they, <laughs> I, I don't think you, you're going to read that and. I, so Jesus chastised his disciples for not having read the Old Testament clearly enough to understand what was happening with his death and resurrection. But certainly those two those two verses that, that, that he's quoting do not point to Jesus in the same way that Isaiah 53 points to Jesus, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. yeah, but I agree with you on that. But you know what? I mean, um, I, I also think there are plenty of kind of obscure Old Testament scriptures that get quoted in the new testament Mm -hmm. and applied to jesus that no jew in their right mind would ever read and say oh that's about the messiah but but now that but once the messiah had come then it was totally appropriate to go you know what 
that verse right there in the Old Testament, that's about Jesus. Like that's about the Messiah because now I know who, who the Messiah is. I've seen him. Uh, mm -hmm. I know who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught and what, you know, his fulfillment. And you know what? That verse applies to Jesus. So it's not always so obvious, I think. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's not always so obvious. I, 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 um, I wrote a book called uh, A Second Adam where I was kind of arguing that recapitulation, this idea that Paul talks about it and Irenaeus talks about it a lot, is, is kind of like the centering principle for how we should think about, you know, well, primarily the atonement, but I was also talking about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what yeah. you'll see in a lot of these passages, for example, Matthew quotes Hosea, where God says, out of Egypt, I called my son, and he's referring to Israel. Now right. you read that and you go, okay, come on, Matthew, you're, you're, you're really, you know, <laughs> you really, this is, this is kind of a stretcher here. You know, you, this doesn't really make a lot exactly, of sense. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. But it actually does make perfect sense if you understand that Christ is the perfect Israel. So what Matthew is doing is he's calling attention to a relationship that Christ has between Israel. He represents Israel. And, and the same thing is done with David. And so, you know, you have passages like that throughout the Old Testament that are used to point to Christ because what they're sort of saying is that Jesus is fulfilling these things in ways that Israel didn't, ways that David didn't, that Adam didn't, um, that Jesus is a more perfect representative. Um, and so, you know, maybe those things you could you, know, you couldn't fault the Jews for, for reading that and not getting that point. But obviously there are other places where it is, you know, you kind of wonder, well, how'd they miss this? Yeah, I think the, the only way we could really dig deeper, you know, is to like go to a specific thing. Because like obviously the Jesus-centric um, model is going to, I think it's more of an issues thing, right? Like you were saying before, like how you how you view homosexuality or how you view war and violence or mm -hmm. uh, our relationship to the state or those kind of things. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think in general, you and I aren't that far apart um, mm -hmm. in theory. Uh, I think it's more when we get down into maybe some specifics of something that we might say, well, you know, you and I might see things just a little bit, a little bit different. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do have an I, a question that sort of popped into my mind. Sure. There are a couple of things you say that have said, um, that have suggested to me that you may also, um, you know, so I, I, can't, I know there's a word better than de-elevate, but um, <laughs> yeah, where, you, you know, you, you sort of talk about de-elevating the Old Testament to some extent. Um, and I also get yeah. a sense that maybe you do that with the rest of the New Testament apart from the Gospels. Can, can you explain to me how you see the letters of Paul or Peter or, or James or John yeah. in relationship to the Gospels? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have any, um, any problem at all with the New Testament scriptures. I mean, I think, I think if I'm going to like sort of make a tent, you know, the, the highest point of the tent is Christ. And mm -hmm. so the red letters, you know, the gospels, you know, the, the things that Jesus said, and then the, below that would be the epistles. Um, you know, the writings of the apostles and, and uh, like you said, uh, James and, and John and, and things like that. And, um, and then would be the old covenant scriptures, the law and the prophets and the Psalms that are, that are helpful and that do, that are, and that are awesome. I mean, that are uh, beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. The things that point us to Christ, but not always beautiful. I think that that's where I get more into the muddy places, but I don't, I don't devalue the writings of Paul or, uh, or the other apostles as compared to Christ. Okay. Let, let's be honest. Let's just be specific. Yeah. Is there a specific thing you think I've that made you feel that way or made you think that maybe I did? I think there's, I don't have it right in front of me. I think there's a citation I had, uh, I, well, there's, there's a place in, um, in Jesus untangled where I think you, you talked about yeah. sometimes Christians going to the letters of Paul and that you were sort of contrasting yes. that with a Jesus centric approach. So I just wonder. Yeah. So let me explain what I mean. Let me let me explain. That's a good point. But let me explain what I mean by that. Because um, I, I, I'm I, what I'm saying is, out is is that again, this comes from just my being in endless debates with other Christians about issues like this. Um, that it seems that Paul is the one that they will appeal to most often, as if what we're doing is following Paul mm -hmm. and the writings of Paul. And I think it's mostly because. Um, Americans, especially Western Westernized Christians, are they prefer Paul uh, because Paul is talking more about kind of 
ideas and theology and doctrine and mm-hmm. stuff that they can wrap their brains around and argue about and build theology around. Whereas Jesus isn't really so much giving them, not only is Jesus not really giving them enough to kind of just play with, because what Jesus over and over again is, is practicum. Jesus is constantly saying, do what I say. Whereas Paul is quite often just like wrestling with theological concepts. So I think for a lot of evangelical Christians, what I've noticed is that, that their Christian faith, and I do think I can trace this back to Constantine, um, that on having the right information, that the Christians in America and the West seem to have the idea that, that um, Christianity is about having the right information about God the right doctrines, the right beliefs. And that if you have the right beliefs, then the more, the right, the more correct your beliefs are, the more Christian you are. Mm-hmm. And the more incorrect your beliefs are, the less Christian you are. But I don't think that's what Christianity is. I think, I think it's about, uh, tra- not information, but transformation. Uh, and I think that, so I think that Christians often will get distracted uh, they prefer not to center on Jesus because Jesus is getting in my business. Jesus is telling me how to live. Jesus is telling me what to do. And it's not fun. And I don't like that. So I, you know, so, so because of that, I think Christians tend to uh, gravitate and find safety to Paul. And then they become very Pauline Christians. Uh, and then, then what I've noticed in what they'll do is, is they'll soften Jesus by quoting Paul. And what mm-hmm. they typically will do, and again, I'm not saying across the board. I'm just saying this is just what I've observed. Typically what they'll do is when, when if you were to quote for them something that Jesus said about putting his words into practice, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, they would counter it with Paul saying, oh, the good thing I want to do, I can't do. And the bad thing I don't want to do, that, that is what I do. And that, that, therefore, that proves no one can ever actually follow Jesus. And it isn't about works anyway, brother. It's about grace. So stop trying to earn your salvation and just rest in the grace of God, and we're done. And so now no one no one needs to follow Jesus. We just need to have the right beliefs, mm-hmm. believe the right things about God, believe the right things about Jesus, and that makes us Christians, and we can just give up on that whole, like, putting his words into practice thing. So, so would you say that would people, you know, quote Paul there in Romans, would you say that they're, would you say Paul is incorrect or that they are misreading Paul? <laughs> they're misreading Paul. Yeah, I, I agree. Because they listen. Yeah. No, no, because, and honestly, this is one of my, you've probably seen these kind of books. I just read one a couple of months ago, but there's tons of these kinds of books, like Jesus versus Paul kind of things. Mm-hmm. Like, like, um, Je- Joseph, Jesus, a, I have loved, but Paul dot, dot, dot. I think there's one of them that's out. No, I, yeah, I, I actually have, I actually have a book someone uh, sent to me and wanted me to read it and talk about it. I can't think of the name of it, but I hated it. Uh, because what it does is, because what they do is they pit Jesus against Paul or Paul against Jesus. And what, what they want to say is that, well, Paul had a different gospel than Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's insane because, um, and what they want to say, and actually a lot of, a lot of people want to, a lot of scholars want to make this point. They want to say, well, see what happened was Jesus showed up. Jesus had a certain gospel. Uh, then later on, Paul shows up, and then Paul kind of becomes a leader in the church, and because he's trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel, and he knows all about, you know, theology more so than these fishermen and stuff that hung out with Jesus, he kind of became the dominant voice for theology and writing these letters and stuff. Um, and then he kind of, uh, you know, took the wheel and turned it in this very, in kind of a very Pauline direction. Mm-hmm. Well, he, and and chronologically— historically right you could say yep first came jesus then came paul Mm -hmm. that seems to make sense doesn't Mm -hmm. it well except that let's look at the dates when those letters were written and the gospels were written paul wrote first then came the gospels Mm -hmm. and so i would argue how did how did all those teachings of jesus come out of a church influenced by paul Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like because what happened was paul wrote all these letters planted all these churches and then, then they sat down and wrote the teachings of Jesus, which, if I'm to believe these other scholars, contradict Paul. Yeah. But I would say what's happening is uh, there's, there's a missing part of the conversation. Oh, yeah. That, first of all, Paul is writing letters. I would say, I would argue Paul doesn't believe he's writing the Bible. Paul thinks he's writing letters to people he knows who are trying to follow Jesus in hostile environments, and he's trying to encourage them with some things they're struggling with in a church. And that's what he thinks he's doing. 
Now, we know now that those letters got saved and, you know, copied and shared. And 2,000 years later, we're, we're using them to understand something about Jesus and about Christianity. Um, but so, so I'd say in those letters, Paul isn't trying to communicate the complete gospel. But I think it's foolish to think he was unaware of it. I think it's foolish to think that, okay, was around. And the oral teachings of Jesus, which were around before anyone sat down and wrote the gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, um, that, that, that people who were following Jesus were, t- were repeating the Sermon on the Mount to one another um, and that Paul was unaware of that. How in the world did Paul spend all those years you know, in the church before he even started his ministry and he never came across this? Well, of course he did. It's just that he doesn't feel the need to repeat that in his letters to people that already know it better than he does, mm-hmm. right? Because they've been Christians longer than he has. So I just think it's a case of we're, 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 we're assuming too much and we're, we're, putting, we're not looking at the whole picture to the mm-hmm. whole thing. So I, I don't think Paul's wrong at all. Mm-hmm. I think we're misunderstanding Paul. And I think Paul, absolutely Paul understood the gospel of the kingdom. And the book of Acts tells us that Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom. And Paul himself says he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Paul says he preached the gospel of peace. So he's not preaching a different gospel than Jesus at all. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a whole chapter outlining exactly what that gospel is. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question, which is if, if scripture can be, you know, amiss or incorrect or, or, or be off in some way, she sort of talked about reading the Old Testament and not seeing Jesus in it and saying, well, maybe this doesn't apply or maybe this isn't inspired in the same way. Yeah. So if, if, if we start with that assumption and then we, we move on to the, the fact that Jesus's words are recorded only in scripture, uh, then how can we have a Jesus-centric approach if we don't have a high view of scripture? Um, I think obviously we wouldn't have the teachings of Jesus if someone didn't write them down. I think, I think we also though, and, and I know this is, this also gets into frankly, just an area of faith, but we also have the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. In other words, we don't just have our brains and some words on a page. We, we do have the, the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us, that he's given to us, that is the, the spirit that leads us into all truth, and that does bear witness in our spirit that these are the words of Jesus and that they are true. So, uh, I, and I, let, me, let me use that as an example. Uh, if you've ever read one of these pseudo gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel mm-hmm. of Judas or those kind of things, have you read those? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know about you, but this was my experience reading the Gospel of Thomas. I didn't need any scholars to tell me that that wasn't Jesus talking, mm-hmm. because it's it just I'm reading it and it sounds like a moron. You know what I mean? It does not sound at all like, you know. God, the Son, or the Word of God who has come and been made flesh to, to walk among us. There is no in-depth wisdom. There is no profound truth. There is nothing in, the, in those words in the Gospel of Thomas, except for the things that they just flat out copied from Mark and other places. Mm. But, you know, it, when you read them, they're just like limericks, and they're nonsensical, and they're just like, this is like a, like a nine-year-old wrote this. This is horrible. Mm-hmm. So I do think we have a Holy Spirit that does bear witness for us that, yes, these are the words of God. These are the words of life. I, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think I agree with that. The, the, I still think there's, there's an issue of subjectivity that could come in there because you, you, you may be familiar that Muslims will argue for the inspiration of the Quran based on the fact sure. that, well, nothing could be as beautiful as the Quran or, you know, things like that. So, sure. um, and, you know. I, but you know what? The exact same thing. I've heard Christians say, mm-hmm you know, uh, the word of God is true because it says it is. Mm-hmm. I believe the word of God is the word of God because it says it is. Well, so does the Quran. So, you know, or, or and, I, and again, that's why I said at the beginning, I know that that gets a little subjective to say what I just said about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, we, what we come down to, it is faith, right? Um, I think that it is a stretch, I'll admit, um, for, many, for many Christians. And I think it's a, it was a stretch for me in the beginning as well, you know, because I didn't come out of the box thinking this, you know, I think I was very much, uh, I had a very different, very much more conservative idea about scripture. But um, I, I don't, I do agree with Brian Zahn when he says that 
that the only thing that the Old Testament scriptures do inerrantly and infallibly is point us to Christ. And so I, I do believe that there are and there were prophets who did hear from God, who did write down prophecies, Daniel, Isaiah, even David. You know, there are definitely, they, 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 were, they received a prophetic word and they wrote it down. And the way we know that it's true is because Christ came and fulfilled it. And we can see that he fulfilled it, you know, thousand years, 2,000 years later after those words were written in, 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 in phenomenal and amazing ways. Um, those, are the, those are the evidences that we have that Jesus was the Son of God, that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But I think it's, I think, again, there are Old Testament scriptures that for me, when I go back and look at them now, I I, I tend to read certain things now and and say, whereas, whereas the past I might have read something in the Old Testament and said, oh, that's the word of God. Um, and now I read it and go, sometimes I read certain things and I say, I think that's what that guy thought God was saying. Or I think, I think that person is reading into the situation, what he believes, the best he believes, this is what God uh, would have wanted or, or commanded. But, because I, but I don't think it's something that actually he, that God did command. And I know, again, that's crazy for a lot of Christians. They go, oh my gosh, you're a heretic. And so maybe I am, but that's that, that's where I am. <laughs> I was going to say that was that was a pretty good closing, but it was maybe a little bit too negative. I, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity <laughs> to uh, to sort of c- c- conclude your perspective here, and I won't uh, I won't contradict you, or argue with you, or anything like that. But um, w- what's something? What, what's the takeaway that maybe someone listening who um, you know listening who, who is sort of intrigued by what you're saying? What would you want them to come away with? And is there any place you'd like them to look for? resources on this topic sure. or, or just to find out more about you? Well, let me just say very practically, I, I had a friend uh, email me a couple of weeks ago and told me, you know, he ran into a friend from high school he hadn't seen in years. And uh, they used to be friends and youth group together, you know, Christians, both of them grew up Christian. But uh, having run into his friend now, they're both in their 40s, his friend had left the faith and he was concerned about that. And he said, well, why is that? Why are you not a Christian anymore? And his friend said, well, honestly, looking at the God of the Old Testament, and I saw God commanding people to go and kill women and babies, and even tell, and even command people in the Old Testament not to show mercy. He forbid them to show compassion and and said, you know, don't hold your hand. Go ahead and kill that five-year-old kid. Go ahead and cut the head off that baby Go ahead and cut that woman's pregnant belly open and do it. Kill every last one of them. Uh, things like that. And saying, I can't believe in a God like that anymore. I, I, I don't, you know, I can't accept a God like that. And so my friend was asking me, just very honestly, what do I say to my friend? How do I answer my friend who's, you know, in this place? And, and I don't think this is uncommon. I think there's a lot of, a lot of Christian, former Christians who are at this place of struggling. And I think there's a lot of non-Christians who would be Christians if it weren't for those kinds of, things that they see the way God is presented in the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is just my response. My response is that here's what I know, is what I'm convinced of, that Jesus is the best and clearest picture we have of who God really is, that no one had ever seen God before at any time, according to the Gospel of John, uh, except God the Son, the Word, who was God and with God and then became flesh and dwelt among us. And that that is the person, that is the clearest, the best picture we have of who the Father really is. The Father who, uh, when, he's, when he's refused, when he's insulted, um, will see his son coming, you know, the prodigal coming home and rush to him and put his robe around his shoulders and put the ring on his finger and say, this is my son you know, and, and love him and forgive him. Um, that the Abba that Jesus reveals to us is radically different in many ways than the God that we see reflected from the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And so for me, the best and clearest picture we have of who God is like is to look at Jesus. That if we see Jesus, we have seen the Father. And we haven't just seen the Father, what he's like on a good day after he's had an, a good nap and, you know, 
read the newspaper and he feels really good. No, what we see, uh, what we see about the father, uh, we see a father who is like Jesus after he has been beaten and tortured on a cross for six hours. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's my God. That's who I believe the father really is. And, and I do think there's a tension and I do think that Christ is the best way for us to um, reconcile some of those things. I, I would say if anyone is curious, I'm going to recommend a book that I will be honest, rocked me uh, and radically changed the way I think about Old Testament scriptures. Uh, there's a book called Who Wrote the Bible by, I believe it's Richard Elliot Friedman. And it reads like a detective story. It's not a boring, dry scholarly technical thing although it's very it is scholarly it's based on scholarship but the way it's written it reads like a detective story you want to, when you finish chapter one you're going to turn to chapter two immediately to find out what happens next um but it's a really interesting book about uh the old testament scriptures and how are they compiled and and kind of answers a lot of questions along those lines um and then like i said my book jesus untangled touches on some of this a little bit brian zahn's book coming out Sinners uh, in the Hands of a Loving God also touches on this a little bit. and um, But I think it's something that, I, I do think it's an ongoing thing. Like N.T. Wright's new book, The Day the Revolution Began, is also, um, you know, approaching this issue of how do we understand the scriptures? How do we approach them? And I think it's a good thing that we might want to take a, take a step to the left or to the right and look at it from a slightly different angle and consider things we maybe haven't considered before. Uh, just to see if we get a better handle on on this to understand it a little better. Great. Thank you, Keith. And if somebody wanted to find out a little more about you, where would they go? Yeah, thanks. Um, my blog is just my name. It's keithgiles.com, K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S. And you can also go to jesusuntangled.com and find out about the book as well. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and have a channel on YouTube as well. So, yeah. Great. Thanks for letting me berate you. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks.